Good morning, everybody. Once again, this is my friend, Skinny Pete. He'll be with me for today's sermon, but uh, he doesn't have anything yet to say. So welcome. If you haven't been in our sermon series, we've been busy with um, the sermon series called Plus Nothing. It's this idea where we're going through Galatians, the book of Galatians, and just slowly but surely working our way through to see what Paul was talking about when he spoke about the gospel. Now, if you haven't been here, I just want to give a quick review of what we did last week. We were in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 to 21, where we spoke about this idea of being in with God. You remember the jerseys that I put on? And the main concern for Paul in this section was, was this. What is the thing that identifies you as being in with God. And what is that thing that you have to do to believe or whatever that makes you in with God? That was what he was speaking about. What is the, uh, the foundation of your Christian identity? And his main answer was that it, it has to do with the Messiah. Jesus is the true Israelite. He is that one person that was in with God. And if we're in with him, we are in. So his main answer was looking at Jesus, looking that Jesus is the faithful one. He is the true Israelite. He is the true person of promise. And so therefore the answer is that he is the foundation of our Christian identity and being in with Jesus. So the question then becomes is not how are you in with God, but how do you belong to the Messiah? Who are those that belong to the Messiah? Because if you belong to the Messiah, if you're in in with the Messiah, you are in with God. So that is what the question essentially is, is how to be in. If you're in with God or if you're in with the Messiah, you become in with God. And so that's where he paused. So today we're going to um, not actually go further into the book of Galatians. We're going to take a bit of a detour um, today. So before we start, let's just maybe have a prayer. Gracious Father, as we come to you, we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us as we speak about a very important message, Lord, and concept um, that Paul probably assumed and a lot of the the authors of Scripture would have known about, Lord, and um, something that we maybe are not that aware of. And I pray, Lord, that this will become so central to our thinking when we think about Scripture, when we think about salvation, when we think about you, that we will know that you are the God of promise, Lord, is my prayer in your name. Amen. So as I said, we're going to have a little bit of a detour, Um, so we're not going to delve necessarily into the book of Galatians, into the text, but there's something that I want to speak about today that is kind of an assumption of Paul, an assumption of scripture, and that is the idea of covenant. What does covenant mean? Take a bit of time just to flesh that out a bit, because without covenant, we can't really understand anything about scripture. So there's a few questions I want to ask. The first one is, what is the importance of the covenant? Why should we study the covenant? Why should we even know about the covenant? Well, there's a book uh, written by Peter Gentry and Stephen Vellum, quite a recent book that speaks about the covenant, a thousand pages where they just go through the importance of the covenant. And they write this, they say, one cannot fully understand scripture and correctly draw theological conclusions from it without grasping how all of the biblical covenants unfold across the, the time and find their telos, meaning goal, terminus and fulfillment in Christ. So they're saying that you cannot, as a Christian, open your Bible and read the Bible and make theological conclusions, which is something that all of us does when we read the Bible. You cannot do that sufficiently without understanding the covenants. 
without, without understanding what they are there for, right? So, so the covenants are super important. They continue, they say, we do not assert that the covenants are the central theme of scripture. That's not the main thing that is about there. Instead, we assert that the covenants form the backbone of the biblical narrative. And thus, it is essential to put them together correctly in order to discern accurately the whole counsel of God. And that's where my friend Skinny Pete McRibs comes in. You can just call him Skinny P, right? If you want to think of the covenant, if somebody says covenant, I want you to think of a skeleton, right? The covenant is the skeleton of Scripture, it is the thing where all the major themes and all the major things are packed on. Now, uh, this morning when I mentioned this, I said, how often do you think of your skeleton? Think, uh, when last were you like, yeah, I've got a skeleton. Then a uh, lady said to me, who is, she says, the older you get, the more you think of your skeleton, which is probably true, right? So, so think about it. When last did you think that you have a full skeleton within your body? You don't necessarily always think that way. It's the same with the covenant. The covenant is all over scripture, but you don't necessarily think of it. That's the first thing. So when I say covenant, I want you to think of skinny pea. I want you to think of a skeleton. I want you to think that's the, the main thing that everything built around. Another thing is that you'll see that skinny pea is well dressed. He has got a beautiful jacket on with a tie on. Now, we don't wear a lot of suits and ties anymore, but if you had to get, if you're a male, uh, if you had to dress up in a suit and a tie, where would you generally be seen to be going? Funeral, yeah, definitely funeral. And what's the other one? Big one. A wedding. A wedding and a funeral. So this is what I want you to think about. When you hear covenant, I want you to think of a, of a skeleton and a wedding and a funeral. It will make, all make sense as we develop this uh, this. Um, theme. So this is the story of the, of the Bible, right? The grand narrative, the big story of scripture. And there's seven plot lines in the story of scripture. There's creation, crisis, covenant, Christ, church, coming and consummation. This is the main plot lines, the main divisions of the story, right? The main acts. If you look at these, you will see that it is littered throughout the story, the idea of covenant. In creation, we start with this idea of Adam pre-fall and post-fall, the first covenant ever given to creation and to Adam. Then we have Noah, Genesis chapter 6. Then we have Abraham, Genesis chapter um, 12 and 15 and 17, right? Then we have, um, we have the, 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 um, the covenant with Sinai. I see that's missing. That should be there. Um, then we have the covenant with David. And then we have the new covenant coming here in Jeremiah. And then Jesus Christ comes to the covenant fulfillment is revealed. Then the new covenant is reiterated in Hebrews chapter 8 with the church. And then basically the coming in consummation is the, the consummation of that fulfillment of the covenant. So when you're reading the story of Scripture, as you're delving into Scripture, you will eventually bump up with this concept of covenant. You might not know about it. You might not be aware of it. You might not even see it in Scripture. But the more you become attuned to it, the more you'll see, oh, whoa, that's covenantal language. Oh, that's a covenantal idea. Oh, this is about covenant. And the covenant is all about God saying, you will be my people and I will be your God. Right? And so oh, the whole of Scripture, this is something that Paul almost assumes, something that he knows is true. Now, these are the major covenants in Scripture, creation, Noah, Abraham, Sinai, David, and the new covenant. Now, question. The Bible is broken up into the first or sometimes Old Testament or the second in the New Testament. And in this Testament, there's various different genres. In the Old Testament, we have the law of Moses, right? So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, and then after that, we have the writings and the wisdom literature. In the New Testament, we have the Gospels and we have Acts and we have the letters of, of Paul. If you have to look at the major covenants, 
Where do you think they are concentrated in? In which part of the Bible do you see a concentration of an articulation of the covenant from this list? All the, new cover, or all the New Testament. Old Testament, right? Which part of the Old Testament? Genesis, Genesis Exodus, round about there. So it is in the law that we have this bulk of information. Now remember, Paul is a, is a Hebrew of the Hebrew. He knows his scripture. He knows he's speaking about the law. The Judaizers are, is giving a big emphasis about you should be keeping the law. You should be a circumcision, which is a sign of the covenant. So Paul, when he's speaking about all this stuff in Galatians, he, his assumption is what? Covenant. The agreement between God and his people. So what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a various things. First, it's an agreement. And we see the first one that is very articulate in Scripture is the story in Genesis chapter 15 where God makes the covenant with Abraham, right? And so we pick up the verse in verse 7, Genesis chapter 15, verse 7. It says, and, and he said, God speaking to Abraham, God coming to Abraham, and he said to him, I am the Lord. I am the one who brought you out from Ur to the Chaldeans and to give you a land to possess. So God is saying to you, I am the one that will give you the land and descendants. I'm the one that was called you. I am the one that initiated this covenant, right? Verse eight. But he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know, how am I to know that I shall possess it? What is the thing that will make me know? And he said to me, bring a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So God, he says, how will I know? How will I know? How will I have the assurity that you will give me what you have promised? How do I know that you will hold up to your bargain? You had called me, you had done these things, but how would I know? So God is instituting a covenant now with him. And he says, let's start a covenant. And the way that you start the covenant is you get these animals and you bring them to me. So he brings the animals, right? Verse 10, and he brought all of these and he said, cut them in half and laid each of them over against the other. And he did not cut the birds in half. So what he does is he cuts the animals in half, he puts one on the one side and one on the other side. This is the way that they would make covenants, make agreements. And then what they would do is that they would walk through them, right? And this would represent a promise that you make. You say, this is an agreement between you and me, party one and party two. And this means that I am so committed to this covenant that if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, this is what can happen to me. Death. Yeah? Now, so a covenant in the Hebrew, the word for, for covenant is berith, comes from the word berith, which means to cut. Have you ever heard of the concept to cut a deal? Comes from this idea to have an agreement, to make a deal with somebody, right? And so it's an agreement. A covenant basically is an agreement between two people. Um, and there's a legal side to it. You're, you're, you're committing yourself. Now, the Greek becomes a bit more specific on what a covenant is in the New Testament. There are two, basically two words in the Greek for a covenant. The one is syntheke, which means a negotiated agreement. Think about a credit card or a, a mortgage or, or a car. You know, you go and you find the best deal. You barter, you ask, ah, oh, can I get it a bit lower? You know, this is a negotiated deal. The, sec one, the second one is this idea of diatheke, which is a testament or a will. Somebody that bequeathed something to you, an inheritance. Now think about this in an inheritance. How many of you have ever had an input into your inheritance? We say, ah, oh, you know, the person has died and now the executor comes and he says, okay, you've received something, an inheritance. And then you're like, yeah, I would actually like a bit more or no, I don't want. Like you generally get what, what was in the will, right? Now, wh which one do you think is the one that is used for a biblical covenant between God and his people? The idea of a credit card, card, mortgage kind of negotiated agreement or this idea of an inheritance? 
right? An inheritance, right? And that's exactly what the Bible says. In Hebrews chapter nine, the book of Hebrews is about Jesus fulfilling the new covenant as the new high priest, as the new temple. And he speaks about this idea in Hebrews chapter nine about the new covenant. And he says this, he says, therefore, Jesus, he is a mediator of a new covenant. Jesus mediates the new covenant so that those who are called may receive a promised eternal what? Inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. If you receive an inheritance, somebody had to die. And that's what this author is saying in Hebrews. He's saying, to get that inheritance of this covenant, somebody had to die. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So he speaks about this idea that somehow the covenant, the agreement that we have with God is this idea of an inheritance, right? Now, I want to ask the question, who, from this legal perspective, from this legal idea of a, of a covenant, who makes himself responsible for this covenant? Who is the one that makes sure that this covenant will happen, right? Or, or it will, it will be, be kept, right? I want to keep on with Genesis chapter 15. And he brought in, with him all of these and he cut them in half. So he is there. God, God and Abraham is in conversation. He says, God, but how will this happen? How will this come to pass? How will I know that this will, this will eventually happen? And God says, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to set up a covenant. And you need to go and get these animals and cut these animals. Now, Abraham would have known about this. This is the way that they would have covenants with everybody. This is how people made covenants during that day. So God stoops down and he is leveling with Abraham on his field. And he says, cut these animals and put them apart. Now, check this out. Normally, both of the individuals had to walk through it. Or if, the, if there was an inferior, the inferior person would have to walk through it, right? So here is, 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 is God and he says, cut, cut these. Now check the, the next verse, verse 17. And when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoke fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Who does that represent? God. So from Abraham's covenant, who is the one that says, I will make sure that this covenant will be kept? Is it Abraham or God? It is God. From the get-go, God is saying, I will make a covenant with you, Abraham, and come hell or high water, it will go through. I will make sure of it. I will make sure of it. And if it doesn't, may I die. Already there's this idea of promise that God will make it see through. He will, he will, he will, he will um, uh, uh, make sure that it goes through, right? Genesis 15 verse 18 says, and on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And he said to him, your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So think about this, the new Jerusalem. What is God talking about? Is he not speaking about in the same idea, this idea of the promised land, the place of possession? That is already rooted in the promise of Abraham, the covenant that he made to Abraham. And what is the covenant that he made to Abraham? Who's the one that made sure that it, it will eventuate? Who's the one that makes himself responsible for this covenant? Is it Abraham or God? It is God. From the beginning, God sets himself up to say, I will make sure that this covenant comes out. Hebrews chapter seven speaks about this idea. It says, Jesus makes himself, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, right? That Greek word there for guarantor is this idea of co-signer. In, in Proverbs, Solomon says that we should never co-sign for somebody. Why? Because when you co-sign for somebody, somebody defaults on the loan and they, they can't pay, then you have to step in and there's always a break of relationship. There's always a bit of guilt. There's always something. And he says, don't do that. 
good ethical financial principles, don't be a cosign. Here it says Jesus co-signs it and says, if you can't pay, I will pay. I make myself responsible for the covenant, the covenant that I will be your God and you will be my people. From the beginning, that was God's intention. Now, another dimension of covenant, this agreement, is this idea of a slave and a master. There's this legal aspect to it, but there's also this, this element, this idea of a slave and a master. During this um, era, there was this thing called the suzerain and vassal treaties. Once again, there's a lot of covenants that are made between people, and a suzerain vassal treaty or covenant was when a stronger nation came in and overtook a, a, a weaker nation. So for instance, Babylon comes and overtakes Jerusalem. Now the one is stronger than the other one, and then they make commitments to each other. They make a covenant with each other. And generally, the stronger one would tell the weaker one what they, what, what they need to do for their protection, right? So the suzerain vassal treaties opened up two sections. So when they would have their document, when they would have their covenant, their legal agreement, it would firstly identify the suzerain, the reigning one, by his name and by his titles. And then there would be a historical survey of what they did and how they should do it, right? And so the purpose is to illustrate to the vassal in this document how much the suzerain has done to protect and establish the vassal who therefore owes submission and allegiance to the suzerain. That's the point of this, of this covenant, of this, of this uh, agreement, right? Now, if you go to Exodus chapter 20, if you have your Bibles with you, you can go there. Exodus chapter 20. This is the first document that God gives the Israelites as they come out of the promised land, after he has saved them, after he has acted so powerfully. Exodus chapter 20, the document... Um, the first, uh, basically, covenant that God has with um, Abraham's people. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1, and it says, And God spoke all of these words, saying, So before he gives them stipulations, before he tells them what to do, he says, um, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, he sets himself up and he tells them who he is and what he's done. This is directly a suzerain and vassal treaty. This is a covenant that he makes with him. The Ten Commandments is a covenantal document. So first he says this, Yahweh is suzerain who delivered, um, delivered them. So there's a vassal lord um, covenant and it represents the people under the authority of the suzerain. The titles is there that he is the Lord your God and he gives the historical prologue. Remember, I am the one that brought you out of Egypt. You didn't come out by yourself. You don't have the power to liberate and redeem yourself. The same with us. Is there anybody here that can say, yeah, I saved myself from my uh, sinful Egypt? We all know that it was Jesus that brought us out. Right? And then the rest of Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 to 17, then gives the stipulations with selected blessings. There's stipulations, that's the Ten Commandments. Because you are saved now, you, have, you do these things. You don't do it to be saved, you do it because you are saved. There's stipulations to that. Now what's powerful this is that when Paul picks on this, in Philippians, specifically Philippians chapter one, he, he calls himself a slave of Christ. That idea is covenantal language. When Paul is writing, his, 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 he doesn't say that I am a disciple. He doesn't say that I'm a believer. He, doesn't, he says, I am a slave of Christ. That word there, doulos, is some translations say servant, but it is actually slave. 
And this idea of slave isn't this idea that you work from nine to five, you know, Monday to Friday, and then you go home and you, you know, kind of rest a bit. No, no, no. When Paul says that he is a slave of Christ, he's saying that I'm in a covenantal relationship knowing that he is the master and I am the slave, meaning my full dedication and commitment is to him and him alone. All my time is his time. All my money is his money. All my talents is his talents. Everything that I am and everything that I own is, is, uh, pays allegiance to Christ and him alone. Amen. So when we step into the covenant with Jesus, we are making a legal, uh, uh, um, there's a legal document, there's a legal agreement that we're saying, Jesus, we come to you and firstly we say that we want to be your slave and we want you to be our master. Now, you have a choice to say, oh, I don't want to be his slave. Well, then you're going to be the slave of sin. Those are the two options. There is no other slave. You're either a slave of God or you're a slave of Satan. You're a slave of sin, but the beauty of the slavery is this slavery brings freedom. This is the only slavery where you give everything and you receive everything back. You receive the gift of grace. Later in Romans, he would say that the wages of sin, that slave master that you're serving is what? Is death. Now remember this idea of covenant. Once again, who is the one that actuates? Who's the one that actually steps into it? Paul doesn't get this idea and he's like, ah, guys, I'm so good because I can say that I'm a slave. He actually gets this from Jesus. Because later on in the same book, Philippians chapter two, he speaks about this. He says, have this mind amongst yourself. He's trying to get the Philippian church to get and to think like Jesus. And he says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which was also yours in Christ Jesus. He says, this is the way that Jesus thought. This is the way that Jesus operated. The way that Jesus did all of these things was because he thought this way, because he had this worldview, because he had this perspective, who though he was in the form of God, although he was the suzerain, although he was the master, he did not count it equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't have to clamor for it because he had it. But he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a what? Of a slave. Now check this out. In the covenant, he is the one that makes himself responsible in Abraham's covenant. Who's the one that is the ultimate slave that could do everything that God had commanded? Was it not Jesus? Was he not the most obedient servant and slave? Of course. Throughout his whole earthly ministry, that's what he did. The will of the Father, not his own will. There were certain times that he said, Lord, I don't want to do this, but your will be done. We cannot serve the way that Christ served. But he comes and he holds up our side of the bargain as, as, as human. In his humanity, he upholds our part of the covenant of slave and master. The next one, uh, next nuance there is this idea of a parent and a child. In Jeremiah 31, um, <clears throat> one of the main sections that starts speaking about the new covenant, we read this, at a time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. This is basically the covenant summed up. I will be your God and you will be my people. And so in Jeremiah, he's speaking about the new covenant, speaking about this that will come. And later on, in verse nine, he says, with weeping they shall come, and with pleas of mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by the brooks of the water into a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my, is my firstborn. Now with this dimension, there's a bit of more uh, uh, relationship, in a sense. 
With a legal agreement, there's not a lot of relationship necessarily. There's some, there's some relationship, but you don't know necessarily what kind of relationship. The same with a slave and a master. It can be an intimate, profound relationship, or it can just be a, a, a hard relationship, right? But here with parent and child, there's something nuanced here. Think about this way. You have a relationship with a bank because you bought a house. They gave you money, and now there's a covenantal relationship between you and the bank. And say for some instance, your house starts to burn down. What are you going to do? You're going to try and do something to kill the fire, right? But you're only going to do it to a certain point where your life is not at danger. If your life is in danger, you're going to say, I'm going to step away and let the, bur- let the building burn, yeah? But what if your child is in that house? Would you then say, well, it's my life or their life? Most parents would say, hey, no way, I'm going to go in, even if I have to die. You see, when you have just a covenantal relationship with the bank, you're going to be like, there's a certain limit that I'm not going to step across. But with a child, you're going to say, no ways. I'm going to go in and I will do anything, right? So now we see this new dimension to this covenant where God says, it's not just a legal requirement. Oh, okay, here we go. I need to do this. But God is saying, this is my child. And I will go to the ends of the earth for my child, for my firstborn. For my daughter and for my son, I will go to the ends of the earth. I will go to the deepest pit of hell if I need to. I will go to the ends of death if I need to. But I will go. Once again, who's the one that that kept this promise? Right? Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who, who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks you for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give you a serpent? If then you are evil and know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father who is in heaven? Right? Jesus brings us a nuance to the covenant and saying, every prayer that you have ever prayed in your life under, is undergirded by this concept of covenant. This concept of I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your Father and you will be my children. Hallelujah. Right? Ellen White writes, she says, Christ's favorite theme was the paternal character and abundant love of God. She says, the main thing that Jesus loved to tell people is that God loves you as a father loves their child. This covenant, this nuance of covenant. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only slave. No, no, no. Gave his only son. Can you see how closely uh, uh, this idea of covenant is with salvation. In Philippians, we read that a, he came down all the way as a slave. Now he says he came all the way as a son. Our whole story of salvation is wrapped up in this concept of what? Of covenant. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but what? In order that the world might be saved through him, the son stepping up to the covenant, keeping the promises that we couldn't keep. And then the the last one that I wanna mention is this idea of husband and wife. Husband and wife, this is probably the one that we know the best, and if you remember Skinny Pete, he has his suit on, right? He has his suit on for the funeral of the inheritance that we receive. He also has his suit on for the wedding that you go to. And so it speaks about the covenant between a husband and a wife, the promises that they make with each other. In Isaiah chapter 54, God speaking, he says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. 
For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says God. For the mountains may depart and the hills might be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. God is speaking to, a, to his people that have left him and forsaken him and, 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 and uh, uh, fraternized with, with other gods and have fornicated. And, and he's saying, but I still love you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Once again, another element of relationship and, uh, and intimacy, of, of love. One of the best stories is the story of Hosea. The story of Hosea, Hosea is an abbreviated name for the word Joshua. Hoshea means he will save, God will save. And God comes to Hoshea and he says to him, hey, I want you to be a prophet of my people. I want, you, I want you to go to my people, but not with a message, but with a way of living. He's not merely gonna write a book. He's not gonna just sit there and write stuff down so that people can read it. He says, no, no, I want you to do something. I want you to go and get a prostitute on the street. I want you to go and marry that harlot and make her your wife. And he goes and he marries this prostitute. And what does she do? She, do, she does what she knows what to do. She goes and prostitutes herself again. And God says, go and fetch her again. Imagine Hosea, this man of God, this man of God needs to go back into this, the, the dodgy part of town, go in the back alleys, look for his wife on the marketplace of sin, find her then being prostituted, right? And this story picks it up in Hosea chapter three, it says, and the Lord said to me, go again, just like I have gone, just like I've gone over and over and over to my people that keep prostituting themselves with other gods that aren't really gods, as my people have left me and fornicated me, have they broken covenant? Go again, Hosea. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. My people are adulterous. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love the cats of raisin. So I bought her for 15 shekels and silver and a home and a letech of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days and you shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be to you. Just think about this. We ourselves have been prostituted, an adulterous nation that moves away from God and our sin and, our, and, and, and God says, I will come and I will buy you again. How did God buy you? We were originally part of God's uh, relationship. We were originally about God's covenant. We were originally faithful to him, but how does he bring us back? How does he buy us back? Is it not through the blood of Jesus himself? Who is the one that is able to, to, to actuate that idea of buying? Is it not Jesus? Who is the one that keeps the covenant again? Is it not the husband that goes to find his adulterous wife? Once again, the covenant is at the root of the salvation story. Alistair Wilson and Jamie Grant speaks about this idea of what the covenant really is. The idea of covenant is fundamental to the Bible story. Everywhere you look, if your eyes are open, eventually you'll see covenant everywhere. At its most basic, the covenant uh, presents God as a desire to enter into a relationship with men and women created into his image. When Paul was sitting down and writing a letter to the Galatians and sending it off to them, when we open the book of Romans, when we open the scriptures, God is not saying, I want you to know more theology. God is saying, no, 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 I want you to know me. The whole point of everything is so that you can step into co communion and covenant with me. I will be your God and you will be my people. 
That's the point of everything. All of these things are supposed to lead us to the covenant. It's supposed to lead us into this relationship. That's what it's all about. And so God is looking for every means possible for, for him to communicate this reality to us. It is reflected in the repeated covenant, I will be your God. And you, where you go, you will see eventually that's what God wants to be. He wants to be our God so that we can be his people. The covenant is all about relationship between the creator and his creation. And this idea may seem simple. However, the implications of covenant and covenant relationship between God and humankind are vast. Everywhere you look, you will see it. Everywhere you go, you will find it. It is there. And that's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am astonished. He says, I'm flabbergasted, I cannot believe this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, this man of covenant that came. He is our master, he is, he is the husband, he is the parent, he is the one that did everything. I, I am astonished that you are quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and who are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul is saying there's only one gospel and there's only been one gospel, the everlasting gospel that Jesus has fulfilled everything for us. Amen. He goes on, he says, but even if, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's the point of Galatians. He's saying, don't listen to these other people. Focus on the true gospel. Focus on the true covenant, the eternal covenant, that Jesus comes and he fulfills these things. He is the covenant keeper. His faithfulness is the one that we need to hold on to. Because when we hold on to his faithfulness, his faithfulness will become our faithfulness. We read this in Revelation, the same idea. He says, this is the, this is the, the, the message that we have been called as Seventh-day Adventists to take out to the world. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel. This eternal gospel gives this idea that the gospel has never changed. There's not a gospel for the Old Testament and a gospel for the New Testament. There's not a gospel for this dispensation and then for that dispensation. Paul is saying, there's one gospel, and if anybody preaches another one, let them be accursed. John says there's an eternal gospel. Only one gospel. Hebrew says the same thing. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. He's speaking about this idea that the Israelites that were going into the promised land were promised to rest in God. The, the, God promised that they will receive a rest. And he says, that promise still stands. Let us, let, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news, the gospel came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Saying the reason that they didn't go into the promised land is because they didn't have faith. How was Abraham saved? By faith. How was Moses saved? By faith. How was David saved? By faith. How are we saved? By faith. By faith in Christ. Knowing that he is the ultimate one. He is the bridge between humanity and divinity. He is 100% God and 100% man. And he is the only one that can fulfill all the, the requirements of the covenant. And so when we hold on to him, we are seen to be holding on to the covenant. We have been seen to, people, to be people of the covenant. And when we hold on to him and he lives in us, we will start to be changed. We will start to be renewed and he will change us. The actuating power will not be like, oh, I'll keep the covenant because you never will. But when he is in you, you will keep the covenant because he is in you. There's a story of this man, John Summerfield Staples. He um, 
was born in 1845 and 1863 when he was about 19 years old. Somebody came to him and said, you have been called by Abraham Lincoln to be a representative recruit. Representative recruit was somebody that had to fight in the stead of somebody. So they said, we'll pay you $500 if you go onto the battlefield in the Civil War, and when you fight, you are fighting for Abraham Lincoln so that he doesn't have to. He has other stuff to do. And so this man went, and he went as a representative of Abraham Lincoln. He fought during the war. Nothing spectacular happened. He survived, came back. Many years later, in 1888, he eventually died from a sickness And when he died, on his tombstone, it says there what? Abraham Lincoln died. This is years after the war, but that that representative, knowing that he represented Abraham, Abraham Lincoln, that great leader, was so dear to him, so precious to him, that when he actually died years later, after the Civil Wars ended and all of these things, he still said, yeah, I'm still that representative. Abraham Lincoln died. When we come to the covenant, when we look at salvation, Jesus takes on your name. He is your representative. He is your recruit that you recruit to say, Lord, I cannot keep the covenant. I cannot do anything to be saved. Please do something for me. And he steps in and he becomes the one that keeps the covenant for us. You can try however you want. You'll never be able to keep the covenant fully. You might keep parts of it. Some good days you might keep a lot of it but you'll never be able to complete all of it. You'll always fall short of the glory of God. But there is one that can keep all of them. There's one that can stand up to all of it and say, I can keep all of it. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the one that can come and he can be your one. He can be your one that steps in. All that you need to do is take the covenant. You need to accept the covenant. You need to accept him as your covenant keeper. You need to invite him in and say, Lord, please come. Please come today and be that one. Be my recruit because I cannot keep it. So that one day when I die, your name will be on my tombstone. And even if I live, I can say that I have died in Christ. And it is no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm going to spend a few moments in silent prayer. And I want you to say today, Lord, I accept you as my recruit. I accept you as the one that will keep the covenant for me. I want to step into this covenant. I want to step into this relationship. Lord, please help me. Maybe this will be your first time making that decision. Maybe it will be the first time that you make this decision to step into this agreement, into this relationship with God. And maybe it will be a thing that you've done before. Saying, Lord, here I am again, saying yes to your covenant. Yes to your salvation. Yes to obedience to you as as my master. Yes to this beautiful relationship with you as my parent. Yes to you as this beautiful relationship as as my husband. I don't want anybody to leave here today to not make that commitment to Christ and him alone. Because there is no other greater commitment that you can make in your life than to Christ as your covenant keeper. Let's pray together. Gracious Father. I pray for all of those, Lord, in this audience and those watching online that might not have made that commitment to you today, but the Spirit is pulling them, the Spirit is impressing on their hearts, and I pray, Lord, that they would make that commitment now. They would say, Lord Jesus, I know I have tried and I have failed. There is no other way to, to, to get to God except through you. There is no way that I can earn my salvation. I can only receive it by having faith in your covenantal faithfulness. 
And so I accept you now as my Lord and my Savior. And then, Lord, I want to pray for those of us that have made this commitment before. I pray that we will make it now once again anew, that we will remember all the beautiful things that you've done in our lives. Maybe we have, we have fallen, apart, fallen away a little bit or we've become a bit cold and lackluster. I pray, Lord, that you would renew something in us again, Lord, that you'll recommit our lives, that we would recommit our lives to you once again anew and afresh, knowing that you are our beautiful God, that there is no other gospel, that it is you and you alone. Lord, thank you for the covenants. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are always there and you all, you've always been there and you always will be there, Lord, searching for us, pursuing us, wanting a relationship with us. Lord, I pray as we, as we continue in the book of Galatians, as we dig into this, Lord, that we would truly see what Paul wants us to see, that we'll come face to face with the power of the gospel, face to face with you, Lord, that we won't have a, 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 a gospel that is mitigated, that we won't have a gospel that is, that is uh, um, just interpreted by somebody else, but that we will meet you and you alone, each of us, for ourselves personally, Lord. That we won't have an inherited faith, Lord, but we would have a faith that is built on you. Bless and keep us now in Jesus' name. Amen.